2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: An intrepid journalist trapped behind bars. She is utterly out of her mind. A temperance crusader pushed to the brink. An angry six-foot
4: woman with a hatchet. Anyone may be afraid of that.
5: ...and a knife wielded by an infamous serial killer. It's linked to a series of crimes that remain unsolved even to this day. Within the walls of great institutions
3: lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Fairfax, Virginia was site of one of the first land battles of the Civil War. And today, it is home to an institution that chronicles the history of a critical instrument of war, the National Firearms Museum. Within its halls are more than 3,000 treasured weapons from throughout American history, including the largest public display of Gatling guns, Sammy Davis Jr.'s Colt forty-five, and an early shooting range game from Coney Island. But one object on display tells a twisted tale of intrigue and subversion. The artifact is made of blue steel and wood. It's about four and a half, five inches long. Senior curator Philip Schreier asserts that this weapon took part in a sinister scheme hatched against the United States. This artifact represents the physical evidence that we were invaded in 1942. Who wielded this weapon in a dastardly plot carried out on American soil? June 13, 1942. As World War II rages in Europe, the American home front is on high alert. And on this night, a 21-year-old New York Coast Guardsman named John Cullen patrols a stretch of Long Island shore. Around midnight, he encounters several men. But under wartime blackout regulations, the beach is off limits. They claim to be fishermen, but oddly, they do not possess any angling gear. Cullen didn't know what to believe. He thought that they all had strange accents. Cullen requests that they follow him back to the Coast Guard station, but they refuse the leader grabbed him by the shirt collar and threatened him in a couple of ways and stuffed $260 in his pocket as a bribe. An alarmed Cullen retreats from the strangers and races back to the station. Cullen goes back and tells his superiors what he saw on the beach. He guides his fellow officers to the scene of the incident, only to find that the men have vanished. But in their wake, they've left some telling clues. German military uniforms, emblazoned with swastikas. And as the guardsmen scan the area for more clues, they notice an unusual mound of sand. They begin digging and quickly make a terrifying discovery. A cache of explosives and incendiary devices, enough to raise an entire city. Immediately, the news got passed up, the chain of command. The FBI was brought in. The FBI launches one of the largest manhunts in its history. J. Edgar Hoover was seriously concerned about what these guys could do loose in the country. Is a secret group of Nazi saboteurs plotting against America? FBI agents are immediately dispatched across the region and begin questioning German immigrants suspected of having Nazi sympathies. But the trail quickly runs cold. Then, on June 19th, the FBI receives an unexpected visitor. His name is George Dash. He said that he had some information of great importance to national security. An agitated Dash confesses he is the leader of the group of Nazis encountered by John Cullen on the Long Island shore. He explains that they arrived by submarine and that their mission, codenamed Operation Pistorius was to blow up strategic U.S. targets, including aluminum factories, a Newark railroad station, and the New York City water system. The FBI is stunned. Why would a German soldier sabotage his own mission and betray the fatherland? He said that he wasn't about to go through with any of this. He was there basically to get out of Germany. Dash asserts that he is fervently anti-Nazi, and that he volunteered for the mission with the sole purpose of defecting. To validate his claim, Dash gives up the names and locations of his co-conspirators, seven former U.S. residents of German descent who are lying in wait for his next command. Authorities quickly track down the seven other Nazi spies and arrest them. And among their belongings, they find this Mauser pistol, now on display at the National Firearms Museum. The FBI charged them with uh, sabotage under the Articles of War. With his cohorts now in U.S. custody, Dash believes he'll be kindly rewarded for his efforts. Dash was hoping to be turned into a hero because he felt that he could be of great service to the United States in, in our war effort against the Nazis. But after being tried in a closed military tribunal, Dash is sentenced to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta to await deportation still a far better fate than his accomplices. Six of the eight were executed by an electrocution on August 8th, not very long after they were caught. It was one of the largest mass executions in American history, and a grim warning to any other would-be spies. Today, this Mauser pistol is on display at the National Firearms Museum in Fairfax, Virginia where it stands as a stark reminder of a heinous plot against America and the unlikely man who brought it down. Washington, D.C.'s National Mall covers 1,000 acres and is one of the most visited tourist destinations in the country. And just steps from the mall is an institution celebrating the history of America's print, radio, and television media. The museum. This vast 250,000-square-foot establishment exhibits a journalist's truck from war-torn Yugoslavia, a section of the Berlin Wall, and an antenna from the North Tower of the World Trade Center. But surrounded by these poignant reminders of recent history sits an aged object that tells a long-forgotten tale.
6: It's brown in color and almost leathery in its appearance. It's about a foot or so wide and six inches, both tall and deep. And it definitely shows its age, but it's clear that it was of the finest quality.
3: According to curator Carrie Christofferson, it was a key accessory
6: to a pioneer
3: who would go to any lengths to uncover the truth.
6: This bag was party to one of the greatest bits of stunt journalism that occurred in the 19th century. So who
3: carried this bag? And what perilous feat did she attempt? 1887. New York City is the nation's publishing capital, and one woman is on her way to Newspaper Row from her hometown of Pittsburgh. Her name is Nellie Bly.
6: Nellie came to New York with great visions of being a journalist at one of the top papers in Manhattan.
3: But female writers are relegated to the women's pages on topics like fashion, gardening, and the arts.
6: This was absolutely something that Nellie found frustrating. Eager to cover hard news, Bly approaches the editors of several newspapers and is met only
3: by rejection. But the aspiring journalist persists... After months of legwork, she manages to talk her way into the offices of one of the most eminent newspapers in the city, the New York World.
6: The New York World was a big paper in New York at the time. Joseph Pulitzer was at the helm. Nellie's determination
3: is palpable, and the editor hears her out.
6: She is making
3: the case for all of the things that she could cover. It seems that there is one story that calls for a particularly tenacious personality— She winds up with this incredible assignment. The editor gives her a daunting task. Write an expose on a notorious insane asylum located in New York City's East River,
6: Blackwell's Island. You were going to Blackwell's Island if you were becoming one of the lost and forgotten of New York. There
3: are suspicions of unspeakable abuse within the asylum, and the paper wants Bly to expose the truth.
6: The idea is to get herself committed to the lunatic's asylum at Blackwell's Island. Nellie's absolutely willing to put herself in harm's way to get to the truth of a story. In September of 1887, she puts her plan into action. Using
3: the name Nellie Brown, she checks into a local women's shelter and gets into character.
6: Nellie is doing her best to swiftly convince the other residents that she's insane. She is ranting and raving. She's making accusations at all of them. She was very convincing.
3: It's not long before the police are called.
6: She's taken to Bellevue where she's evaluated by doctors, who she is also able to convince that she is utterly out of her mind. And from there, then she is committed to the lunatic's asylum. And soon, the secrets of the asylum are revealed. There are rats everywhere. They're forced to eat rancid food. Buckets of cold water are thrown on them. And to her horror, she learns something even worse. Meetings were definitely going on routinely uh, in the lunatic's asylum. And while Nellie keeps her
3: head low, she makes another shocking discovery.
6: Nellie talks to the other patients as much as she can and comes to the clear conclusion that many of them are as sane as she is. After several agonizing days, she is satisfied that she has seen enough. Nellie drops her act of insanity. She tells the staff that she's not crazy. And, of course, they don't take that with any kind of seriousness at all.
3: Soon, the severity of her situation becomes clear.
6: That Nellie's fate is sealed. She'll never actually make it off of Blackwell's Island. It seems
3: Nellie Bly's assignment has gone terribly awry. Will she be stuck on Blackwell's Island forever? Forever. It's 1887, New York. To write an exposé on the city's unfair treatment of its mentally ill, intrepid reporter Nellie Bly feigns insanity and is committed to the notorious asylum on Blackwell's Island. But after gathering her story, Nellie comes to a terrifying realization. She can't convince the staff that she's sane. So will she make it off Blackwell's Island? Or will she actually lose her mind?
6: We can only imagine what she may have been thinking. She's desperately hoping that there will be an end to all of this. But just when Nellie thinks she has been forgotten, help arrives. After 10 days, the New York world, they send their lawyer to liberate Nellie from the asylum.
3: When the lawyer reveals that Bly is a journalist, the asylum authorities are outraged.
6: The doctors resent being duped at this point. She has seen all that goes on inside the walls at the asylum. After leaving Blackwell's Island behind, Nellie quickly gets to work. The story really exposed the abuses that were systemic throughout the mental health system within New York at the time. And on October 9th,
3: 1887, her article is published as the lead feature in the Sunday paper
6: titled Behind Asylum Bars, and it's an instant sensation.
3: The article causes such a stir that a grand jury is called to investigate the failings of the mental health system. And the asylum is ultimately closed. In the end, the article catapults the steadfast Nellie to fame, and she goes on to have a lengthy and adventurous career exposing
6: corruption, campaigning for women's rights, and traveling the world. She was a pioneer in women's journalism and a force within investigative reporting.
3: Today, this satchel, in which she carried the tools of her trade, stands as a poignant reminder of the dogged work of one investigative journalist who changed the face of the mental health system forever. Just blocks away from the museum is a Washington, D.C. institution dedicated to the darker side of American history, the Museum of Crime and Punishment. From bank robber John Dillinger's death mask to serial killer Ted Bundy's car and John Wayne Gacy's infamous clown outfit, the museum sheds a uniquely personal light on the nation's criminal justice system. But tucked away from these high-profile artifacts sits a generic object whose everyday use belies the notoriety of its infamous owner.
5: The object is made of green plastic, blade metal, is four inches long, it weighs less than a pound. But as author Wendell Watkins can attest,
3: the identity of its owner casts a haunting shadow on this commonplace object
5: that particular individual is linked to crimes that remain unsolved even to this day. Who owned this knife? And how was he connected
3: to one of the most notorious murder cases of the 20th century? Massachusetts, June 14th, 1962. Police find the lifeless body of 55-year-old Anna Sleschers in her Boston apartment,
5: a bathrobe cord pulled tightly around her neck. Six days after that, another woman was found strangled in her apartment. And six days after that, yet another woman was found strangled in her apartment. That started the police to think they may have a serial killer on their hands.
3: As the list of murder victims grows, the killer comes to be known as the Boston Strangler. Over the next 18 months, the killings continue unabated and unsolved. Then, after the 11th strangling the murders suddenly stop. It's like the strangler disappeared. For the next year, the police continue to hunt for a suspect, to no avail. Then, in March of 1965, the case is blown wide open. A mentally unstable man incarcerated since the previous November at a state psychiatric hospital confesses to being the infamous Boston Strangler.
5: His name is Albert DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo is 33 years old, and he's listed as his occupation as a handyman, but he already has an extensive rap sheet for assault. DeSalvo also has a history of breaking and entering, but he claims that's not how he gained access to the victim's apartments. His modus operandi was that he used this maintenance uniform where he would ring the doorbells and knock on the doors and offer to fix things. Because the crime scenes showed no sign of forced entry, investigators
3: had been convinced that the strangler somehow managed to gain the trust of his victims. DeSalvo's confession seems to confirm this suspicion. And as DeSalvo describes the crimes in near photographic detail, authorities
5: become more and more convinced that they have their man. Police said he started presenting information that they hadn't revealed to the public. He was able to describe what the victims were wearing. And he was also able to tell them how they were killed. But the police have a problem. As detailed as the confessions were, there was never any physical evidence that tied Albert DeSalvo to any of the cases. But authorities catch a break.
3: DeSalvo is soon convicted of unrelated sexual assault charges.
5: And in 1967, he's sentenced to life in prison. This whole process served a purpose to bring closure to the Boston Strangler event. Even though technically the crimes remain unsolved, the stranglings had stopped and the alleged perpetrator was off the streets. Authorities believe they can finally close the case
3: of the notorious Boston Strangler. Then, six years later, DeSalvo makes a frantic call to a former prison psychiatrist, Dr. Ames
5: Roby. He tells him he needs to talk to him right away. He wants to tell him the real story as to what happened with the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo seems highly
3: agitated, so much so that the psychiatrist promises to visit the confessed
5: killer the very next day. What the public knows about the Boston Strangler appears to be in jeopardy. Could Albert DeSalvo be innocent of the murders to which he
7: confessed?
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's
3: 1973, and the confessed Boston strangler Albert DeSalvo is serving a life sentence in a Massachusetts prison. But when he urgently requests a meeting with his former prison psychiatrist, promising to share the real story of the killings, people start to wonder if DeSalvo is actually the man responsible for these heinous crimes. Psychiatrist Ames Roby is eager to hear what his former patient has to say. But the morning of the scheduled visit, prison staff open DeSalvo's cell to find a shocking sight. The confessed murderer has been brutally stabbed to death. This switchblade, now at the Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C., lies
5: unused at his side. Apparently, he was trying to defend himself and never had a chance to. Prison officials soon determined that DeSalvo was likely targeted
3: due to his involvement in a prison drug ring. But no one is ever convicted of the murder. For many, the demise of the Boston Strangler is welcome news. But others are left to wonder what critical information Albert DeSalvo was so eager to reveal. Dr. Roby believes that DeSalvo was going to admit that his 1965 confession was a lie and that he was not the notorious
5: serial killer. But why would he admit guilt if he wasn't responsible? Dr. Roby characterized Albert DeSalvo as a person who craved attention. And that's part of the reason why he would seek to take credit for what the Boston Strangler had done. Dr. Robey's skepticism is shared by others. There were several investigators who didn't believe that the Boston Strangler was just one person. They thought that it was at least two people working separately. But if DeSalvo didn't commit the crimes, how did he know enough about them to give such a detailed confession? Even though Albert DeSalvo knew a lot about the details of the crimes, a lot of that was published in the newspapers. Furthermore, some have suggested
3: that the police peppered him with leading questions during the original interrogation. But the answer may also lie with the time DeSalvo spent at the Psychiatric Institute under Dr.
5: Roby's care. One of the things that Dr. Roby noticed was that Albert DeSalvo was spending a lot of time with another inmate George Nasser, a two time convicted murderer who was also on parole during the time of the stranglings. Some believe that Nasser
3: committed at least some of the murders and fed the details to the fame hungry DeSalvo, who confessed the horrific crimes as his own. Now in his 80s and serving a life sentence for an unrelated murder, Nasser has never been charged with the killings and denies any involvement. And in 2013, new DNA evidence links Albert DeSalvo to the final killing long attributed to the Strangler. But the rest of the gruesome murders remain
5: unsolved. The true identity of the Boston Strangler or Stranglers is still a mystery today. And this switchblade at the Museum of
3: Crime and Punishment in Washington serves as a reminder of the truths Albert DeSalvo took with him to his grave. Founded as a trading outpost by the Dutch in 1624, New York City has since grown into a center of global power and influence. And on Manhattan's Upper West Side, the New York Historical Society serves as a repository for hundreds of years of this rich history. Sitting within its walls is an 18th century stagecoach, a painting depicting George Washington's inauguration, and an early fireman's helmet. But one of the most popular items in this collection is a seemingly mundane artifact.
7: It is a portrait about five feet high of a homely looking woman dressed in very uh, elegant blue gown.
3: But historian Valerie Paley can attest that there's more than meets the eye when it comes to this ostensibly ordinary artwork.
7: It's had a rather infamous and somewhat checkered past.
3: In fact, this painting speaks to a shameful episode that shook this city to its core. Who is portrayed in this portrait? And how is it connected to one of the most notorious political scandals in the history of New York? May 2nd, 1702, New York. The newest governor of the New York and New Jersey colonies, Edward Hyde, better known as Lord Cornbury, arrives in this expanding city of some 4,000 residents. He's been assigned to the prestigious post by his cousin, Queen Anne. But as the story goes, promises of an honest and principled term are short-lived.
7: One of the first things that Cornbury does is establishes a ring of close advisors that essentially enable him to pilfer some public funds.
3: Money meant to shore up New York's military defenses is whispered to go instead toward the building of a grand vacation home. Then, as the governor's popularity plummets, an even more remarkable rumor begins to circulate. Apparently, Lord Cornbury enjoys a particularly
7: unconventional pastime cross dressing. The rumor was he liked to dress up to look like his cousin, Queen Anne. Letters
3: sent back to England by astonished colonists claim that Lord Cornbury was seen parading on the ramparts of the New York fort in women's clothing. Further reports suggest that he even opened up a session of the Colonial Assembly
7: dressed as the queen. Allegedly, he wanted to recall for the public the fact that he was related to the royal monarch. Finally, in December of
3: 1708... The years of corruption and dishonor under Lord Cornbury seemingly become too much for the crown to bear, and Queen Anne removes him from office.
7: Cornbury leaves New York in disgrace. The legacy he leaves is one of of disaster. It was one of the worst governors ever. Then, in
3: 1796, over 80 years after Cornbury is forced from power, this painting surfaces in the collection of a wealthy English family the subject is identified as none other than the notorious former governor of New York.
7: All of a sudden, now we have more documentary evidence as historians of our royal governor in drag.
3: Or do we? Some two centuries later, one historian makes a discovery that calls into question the entire twisted tale of the drag queen governor of New York. For 200 years, historians have believed that an infamously corrupt colonial governor of New York named Lord Cornbury was an unrepentant crossdresser, often appearing in public adorned as his cousin, Britain's Queen Anne. But at the end of the 20th century, the reputation of this scandal played governor is about to get a serious makeover. In the 1980s, New York University professor Patricia Bonamy comes across assessments of Cornberry, written while he was in office. And surprisingly, the reports of the governor's performance
7: are glowing. He helped foster a good relationship between the colonists and the Indians of the state. She also finds that he uses uh, some of his own funds to help the military that protects uh, New York. These findings are in direct contradiction to everything
3: Bonamy knows about the governor, leading her to wonder, could Lord Cornbury's ignoble legacy be undeserved? As she digs further, Bonamy is stunned to find that reports of Cornbury's cross-dressing appear in just four letters sent back to England from the colonies, and none of the writers recount witnessing this proclivity themselves.
7: She thinks more and more that perhaps this was just slander that was typical of the time.
3: But if this was just a smear campaign, who was behind the attacks? The much-maligned governor had his share of political enemies. Chief among them was one of the authors of the damning letters, a New Jersey state assemblyman named Louis Morris. A member of the opposition political party, Morris was determined to push Cornbury from power. Bonamy comes to believe that the charges of corruption and cross-dressing may have seemed just the ticket.
7: Once the rumor is thus circulated, it catches on. And so, essentially, something that began as hearsay becomes thought to be fact.
3: So what of the portrait hanging in the New York Historical Society, purported to be Lord Cornbury dressed in female
7: garb? After exhaustive research, Patricia Bonamy concludes that the painting is not of Lord Cornbury, but in fact is a painting of a colonial or British aristocratic woman.
3: Today, the true identity of the woman in this portrait remains a mystery. But the New York Historical Society continues to display the picture as a reminder to visitors of the fantastic tale of Lord Cornbury and as proof that history is not always what it seems. In north central Kentucky sits the charming city of Bardstown. First settled in 1780, it's one of the oldest communities in the Bluegrass State. But it is better known as the bourbon capital of the world, thanks to the many distilleries that call the area home. And at the Oscar Goetz Museum of Whiskey History, The rich story of the popular libation is celebrated through exhibits featuring copper stills, antique whiskey bottles, and a heavy iron barrel stamp. But according to historian Dixie Hibbs, one of the most fascinating items in the museum's collection is a foot-long instrument caught up in an epic crusade that took the country by storm.
4: It's made of cast metal, it has a long handle, and it has a blade.
3: Saloon patrons across the United States would come to fear the person depicted on this relic.
4: She not only believed strongly, she acted strongly.
3: So who wielded this hatchet? And what battle was she fighting? 1890. The nation is in the midst of a social revolution called the Temperance Movement. Activists across the country are attempting to limit or even ban the consumption of intoxicating liquor. They believe that alcohol is responsible for societal ills like violence, crime, and poverty. And leading this charge against drink are women. The use of alcohol
4: and the abuse of alcohol they were against because it it tore down the family.
3: One of the movement's most devoted supporters is a Kansas resident named Carrie Amelia Nation.
4: She was a formidable woman. She was six feet tall. She uh, weighed almost 200 pounds. To her, alcohol was an evil instrument.
3: Carrie's hatred of drink is rooted in her experience with her first husband, who she married in 1867, only to leave less than a year later after realizing he was a raging alcoholic. Her nascent family destroyed, she's turned her attention to preaching for prohibition bolstered in her anti-booze beliefs by her strong Christian faith. And her home state of Kansas is her prime target. By 1880, Kansas had passed the prohibition. No alcohol
4: was to be sold in Kansas. Well, they weren't enforcing that law. There was a lot of alcohol sold in Kansas. And that made her very mad. Miss Carey was not gonna stand still for whiskey being served in her state.
3: So Carrie takes to the streets leading protests in front of local saloons, trying to dissuade patrons from enjoying their illegal libations.
4: But things weren't going very well because the men just ignored them.
3: Carrie is increasingly frustrated by her lack of progress. So one evening before bed, she turns to her faith for answers. She started praying about this, and she was given a divine direction. After a night of fervent prayer, Carrie says that God has instructed her to travel to the town of Kiowa, known as a haven for area drunks. There, her mission will take a shocking turn. June 7, 1900. Carrie Nation arrives in Kiowa and heads to one of the town's notorious saloons. But this time, divinely inspired, she plans to use more than mere words to protest the sale of liquor. As she strolls into the establishment, she pulls out a paper-wrapped package and aims it at the bottles lined up behind the bar. She was going to smash this saloon. Onlookers watch horrified as Carrie throws paper-wrapped rocks at the bottles, the mirrors, and even the windows, utterly destroying the bar. But this is just the start of her reign of destruction, and she'll soon add a more powerful weapon to her arsenal. It's the early 1900s in Kansas, and prohibition advocate Carrie Nation has taken her protest of alcohol directly to the saloons that serve it. Armed with rocks, she wreaks havoc in an effort to destroy their supply. But Nation is about to add an even sharper weapon to her arsenal. January, 1901, Wichita. Carrie arrives at a hotel bar, ready to do some damage. But this time, she has with her an instrument that saloon owners statewide will come to fear. A hatchet. With it, she can cut right to the heart of the saloon's supply of spirits. Most of the alcohol
4: that was being delivered to saloons and restaurants were in barrels. If you really wanted to do damage, you went toward the barrels. And that's why the axe works so well.
3: Filled with righteous rage, Carrie slices through every piece of glass and wood in the bar. Few saloon patrons stand up to stop her.
4: An angry six foot woman with a hatchet, anyone would be afraid of that.
3: Carrie continues to strike saloons statewide, and the press reports on her every destructive move. Soon, Carrie's antics are so widely known that some of her barkeep opponents take up their own hatchets, like this one at the Oscar Goetz Museum of Whiskey History, featuring an image of the infamous campaigner and the motto, All Nations Welcome But Carrie. They'll hang it on the front wall of their bar, or they'll hang it on their, behind their bar. Despite the threats and numerous arrests, Carrie wields her axe with abandon over the next months. But by March, it becomes clear to the crusader that her actions may no longer be benefiting her cause.
4: She realized that she had basically worn this out. And the articles written about her put her out to be a woman out
3: of control. And that didn't show well. So, on March 12, 1901, Carrie Nation makes a surprise announcement. She will no longer smash bars. Instead, for the next 10 years, she continues her fervent fight against alcohol, mostly through the written word and on speaking tours. But on January 3rd, 1911, while in the midst of a speech, she suddenly exclaims, I have done what I could, before collapsing in a heap. Six months later, Carrie Nation is dead. Just nine years shy of national prohibition, which banned the sale, manufacturing, and consumption of alcohol for 13 years. Today, this hatchet at the Oscar Goetz Museum of Whiskey History serves as a stark reminder of a woman driven to extremes, and ahead of her time. Oneida, New York. This small city in the center of the state is named after one of the six Indian tribes of the Iroquois nation. And just a few miles from the town center lies a sprawling 200-acre campus that was once home to a very different type of society, the Oneida Community Mansion House. And according to museum curator Anthony Wonderley, among the stunning 165 rooms of this vast preserved home is a set of artifacts critical to understanding the people who once lived here but are now long gone.
8: The metal objects about four to six inches long.
3: It has tarnish on it. This silverware nourished a seemingly wholesome community that held a dark and sinister secret. What role did these finely crafted silver pieces play in the rise and fall of a radical utopian cult? February 1834, New Haven, Connecticut. A promising young theology student named John Noyce is in his second year at Yale. But a recent epiphany over man's salvation from sin ignites within the youthful scholar a radical religious awakening. He began saying that you are actually free of sin.
8: Now you don't have to ask for forgiveness. And then he announced that he was perfect.
3: The heretical statement rocks the clergy, and Noyce is expelled from the divinity school. But the young zealot is undaunted. He believes that God has revealed to him the keys to salvation, that men and women are equal, and that he is destined to build a society based on these principles. So he sets out in search of disciples.
8: Noyes had the ability to bring out the best in everyone around him. And everyone seemed to radiate in the aura
3: of his charisma. Now with his growing minions, Noyce seeks to build his vision of Eden and finds the ideal setting on a picturesque plot in Oneida, New York. Their first act was to build a communal house. In this home, Noyce establishes a lifestyle where men and women work, play, and learn together. To keep the Oneida community going, they turned early on to industry and manufacturing. The Oneidans start to produce and sell various household goods. And no item becomes more successful than their line of everyday silverware. The same pieces now on display at the Oneida Community Mansion House. Sales exceed all expectations and fly off the factory floor. By the 1860s, Noises Eden is thriving and membership swells to nearly 300. As a community, they were wealthy
8: and able to afford many amenities in life. So people thought this was heaven on earth.
3: But beyond the veil of happiness and perfection, Noise institutes a surprising and unusual practice that will bring his utopia tumbling down. It's
1: 1848.
3: Radical religious leader John Noyce has established a commune in Oneida, New York, in an attempt to create the New Eden. There, men and women live, love, and work in perfect harmony. But behind this facade of domestic bliss lurks a dark secret that will drive this heaven on earth to its knees. 1878. As Noyce's utopia grows, Journalists become curious about life in the United community and soon begin reporting on a sordid practice. It seems the cornerstone of their religious beliefs lies in the practice of promiscuous sex. Their idea was that romantic
8: love involving one man and one woman was an act of extreme selfishness. Families joining together were separated. A wife and
3: a husband no longer slept together. Instead, Noyes has symbolically married all the men to all the women in a system called complex marriage, opening the door for members of the community to have sex with myriad partners. But it was far from a free-for-all. Noyes instituted a strict birth control policy. He also controlled liaisons with an iron fist, determining who could and could not sleep together. But as time marched on, the community's membership aged. So Noyes decided to implement a controversial plan to create a new generation of Oneidans. The Oneida community instituted a program of planned breeding. More spiritually advanced men and women were paired off by the community leaders to have a child. Local authorities and clergy are outraged by the cult's social engineering and deviant sexual practices, and they launch a crusade to bring Noise down. Over time, they are approached by members who have tired of their leader's authoritarian rule, and they share a shocking secret Noise sleeps with the group's underage virgins. Armed with these criminal details, authorities prepare for Noise's arrest but the preacher catches wind of his impending doom. John Humphrey Noyes made the decision that he had to flee to Canada. In isolation, Noyes succumbs to a deep depression and passes away in 1886. Now, without their leader, the commune slowly dissolves and its members leave to pursue conventional family lives. They voluntarily became ordinary
8: Americans, but members held stock in a holding company called the Oneida Community
3: Limited. The company continues to make silverware, and over time, it flourishes. Today, Oneida Limited is one of the largest manufacturers of cutlery in the world. And while the values and ideals that spawned the Oneida community have vanished, this silverware is a reminder of the rise and fall of a bizarre religious cult. From an asylum expose to a tarnished politician, a hatchet-wielding warrior, to a sex-obsessed cult. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.